Okay, if you'd like to open your Bibles now, we're going to be looking at Job um, at the end of 38 all the way to the start of chapter 40. What a blessing it is to come to church each week. I often think that church is cross-shaped, and I mean that in lots of different ways. Obviously, the cross is the centre of what we come to uh, as our foundation, who we come to worship. But as we come to meet with the Lord vertically, we also come to meet with one another horizontally. Um, And so again, if you're visiting with us this morning, a very warm welcome. It's great to have you with us. We're going to, we're almost to the end of our series on the book of Job. And can I just say, um, it's been a long series, but it's been deliberate because it is all God's word. Next week is where it all comes together. So next week's the one you don't want to miss um, because really what we're seeing here is the answer to everything Job has posed as a question. Um, But before we get to the the last week, we're going to get to the penultimate um, section, which is this section before us today. I'm going to read from chapter 38, verse 39, all the way through to chapter 40, verse 5. And this is God's word. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? I gave him the wasteland as his home, the salt flats as his habitat. He laughs at the commotion in town. He does not hear a driver's shout. He ranges the hills for his pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him to the furrow with a harness? Will he till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on him for his great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to him? Can you trust him to bring in your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of an ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly, as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labour was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom, or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, She laughs at horse and rider. Do you give the horse his strength 
or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Do you make him leap like a locust, striking terror with his proud snorting? He pours fiercely, rejoicing in his strength, and charges into the fray. He laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. He does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against his side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, he snorts, Ah! He catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high? He dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is his stronghold. From there he seeks out his food. His eyes detect it from afar. His young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there is he. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a great blessing it is to be able to meet together and not just to meet together on earth with brothers and sisters in Christ, with friends and family, but to know that we are meeting this morning with you, the true and living God, the one who reigns in heaven and who meets us here now by your Holy Spirit. Lord, you still speak to us out of the whirlwind. But thankfully, it's not a storm every time, but it's often a quiet whisper. It's through our reason, it's through our conscience, it's through our logic, it's through your word, by the power of your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time as we sit at your feet and as we meditate on your word. May you open our ears that we would hear your voice. And Father, we pray that you would bless me that both what I say and how I say it would bring you honour and glory and everyone here edification, instruction and encouragement. So Lord, we commit this time into your hands. We ask for your blessing and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the closest... I've ever come to falling away as a Christian was ironically when I first believed. I was going for a walk around my college or university where I was attending in the United States and I came across a group of people who were studying the Bible. And you might think that was pretty weird that this would be the setting for in which I would reject Christianity and turn my back on Jesus, but it was. They were studying the book of Ephesians, which, God willing, we're going to look at next. 
And they were looking on this particular day at Ephesians chapter 1 and they were discussing quite um, in an animated way the truth which is contained there that God had predestined some people before he'd even created the world to have eternal life. Honestly, it was the first time I'd ever heard something like this and I was shocked and appalled. I did not want to believe in a God like that. And I honestly thought of right then and there, chucking the whole thing in. But the man leading the Bible study that day graciously responded to my objections, saying, Mark, God is sovereign, and you are not. Your problem is that you still want to be in control. If I'd known better, I would have thought, have you talked to my (laughs) ex-girlfriend? Because she'd seen saying the same thing to me. The problem with you, Mark, is you want to be God. I immediately knew that he was right, and I gave in. And I, I can only say that as I did, something really beautiful occurred. And that is, I felt this profound sense of peace and of just being spiritually humbled, of realising how great and mighty and awesome God is, while at the same time being prepared to take my place in the universe as his child. Pot, meet Potter. It was a life-changing experience and I'm pretty sure he had no idea what happened inside me because I kind of walked off in a huff, walked away. I didn't know what to say. But I never viewed the Lord in the same way again. He was God and I was not. That's exactly the point which Job comes to at the start of chapter 40. Last week, We looked at the macro view of the universe, which describes how God is in control of everything, the whole cosmology, the whole universe. Whereas this week, we actually change focus and we look at a micro view of creation and we see that God is so sovereign, he's so powerful, he's so in control that he's also in charge of what you might call zoology. It's establishing exactly the same point, but from a complementary perspective. The truth is, God is sovereign and Job is not. God is in control of the big stuff and God is in control of the really little stuff. But the point is this, there is nothing that is outside God's sovereign control and power. So... The point is, who is Job to accuse God of acting unjustly? Because Job has no idea what is going on. Last week, uh, I mentioned the famous atheist playwright, George Bernard Shaw. He's the guy who I think once blasphemously complained about what the Lord says to Job here and the argument that he makes. This is what he said. If I complain that I am suffering unjustly, it is no answer to say, can you make a hippopotamus? 
But not only does Shaw fail to perceive what that creature represents, which is something that we'll look at, um, God willing, next week, he also fails to acknowledge the extent of God's sovereignty. That his knowledge and his love extends to every single thing in creation. From the stars in the heavens to the most obscure animal hiding in the rocks in the mountain, God is in charge. The Lord doesn't just make hippopotamuses, but he creates and he sustains everything in the universe. And so who are any of us to talk back to God, let alone question him or even worse, accuse him of wrongdoing? We know so little for his power and wisdom and understanding are beyond human comprehension. In your growth groups this week, uh, you hopefully looked at the poem by Robert Frost, the famous American poet. It's a wonderful description of poetic insight into how if you look very carefully at the world, you will see both beauty and horror. Both of those things coexist at the same time. As Pascal once said, as human beings, we are both the glory and the garbage of the universe. Depending on how closely you look, you'll see both. Robert Frost uh, refers to this as what he calls, I love this expression, the design of darkness. The design of darkness. And he said that when you examine life closely, it's like this. This is his analogy. It's like a spider sitting on a beautiful heel-all flower. And his belly is bloated with a moth that he's just eaten. And you realize that there are so many things in life, right, which are both beautiful and appalling. And they exist at exactly the same time. And yet, even this has a divine design, do you see? There is a design of darkness, even in that. It's totally good because there is, well, let me put it this way. It's not totally good because there is the presence of death and decay, but it's still obviously from the hand of the Almighty. What Robert Frost is noticing, though, is not only beautifully expressed, but it's a great observation of the paradox that exists in our world. You see, too often, friends, we have this simplistic view of goodness or niceness, we should really call it. That even on a very small micro level, God is constantly engaged in overseeing the running of the universe in ways which we could never grasp or fully understand. He's infinitely greater than we could ever think or imagine. Now, to help us catch a glimpse of what this means in chapter 39, he refers to eight different creatures. Now, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. Just like Robert Frost, though, we need to slow down and reflect on, we, on what each one of them really means. Because it's not just saying that God can make them. There's something else going on here. Each one of these creatures is pointing to an even greater reality of God's power and his control because it's actually looking at the paradox of human existence. 
It gives us a tremendous insight into not only who God is, but also why, and here's the point, why you can trust him when things go wrong. This is the point that God is getting at. Especially when you might experience what you might call, quote-unquote, unjust suffering, or when your life is falling apart. Can you trust him? Yes. Yes is the answer. Just take a look at the first example again of the lions at the end of chapter 38. One of the most feared beasts in all of creation. Everything cowers before him so that they are called the king of the jungle. And yet notice that it's the Lord who hunts the prey for them. The lionesses just don't go out and find it for themselves. God is the one who hunts. See the difference? Many people, even some Christians, tend to view the world from the perspective, the philosophical perspective of what is called deism. It's just the belief that God is like a divine watchmaker who winds up the universe and then he steps back and he lets it just run its course. You might think, what's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with it, it's just not what the Bible says God's like. The Bible reveals that God is, well, continues to be so intimately involved in sustaining the universe that not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from his will. The Lord doesn't just wind up the clock and then sit back and just watch it tick like we would in our lounge rooms, waiting for the hour hand to chime. God moves the minute hand. God moves the seconds that goes around. It's sustained by him. The very next breath you and I breathe is a gift from the Almighty. I'll never forget Peter Jensen, um, who was the principal at Moore College at the time. He taught us this truth in first year doctrine class. He used the words of Psalm 19 verse 5. It says this, In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from its pavilion." Like a champion rejoicing to run his course, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. You see, not even the greatest, most powerful planet in the universe, which gives life and life to everything, is just running off its own principles, off its own steam. It's sustained by the Lord's all-powerful, omnipotent hand, you see. On the other end of the spectrum, though, God provides the food for the ravens. And even its young, as they are crying out in the nest, they're not actually just crying out to their mother. You notice what the scripture says? They're crying out to the Lord. That doesn't mean that they sometimes don't go hungry, because verse 41 says they do. But unlike Stephen Fry, um, We know from Scripture the reason why evil and suffering is present. Because there is this tremendous cosmic rebellion which has occurred and it's resulted in creation being fractured of what the Lord had originally declared was good has now been subject to frustration. I think it's only the Christian person that can truly grasp this. That we are both the glory and the garbage of the universe. 
that there is both goodness and evil which exists. Only a biblical worldview helps you to see and understand that. It stops you from either being too pessimistic or too optimistic. It gives you realism to see how life really is. You see, people like Stephen Fry, who we looked at last week, are only demonstrating their own ignorance when they think that the presence of pain or suffering or evil refutes God's existence. It doesn't. As we've seen, the Bible clearly declares that there is both evil and good in the world. It's just that God is sovereign over both. Now, again, this might be blowing your mind a little bit. You might be thinking maybe in terms of more Eastern mysticism of the yin and the yang, and that maybe they're just two equal forces. They're not. The devil is God's devil. And the devil does God's bidding. As we saw last week, this means that also pain and suffering is in God's hands. C.S. Lewis, I think, wrote one of the greatest treatises on this, which is accessible. He wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. He wrote it, actually, after his wife died of cancer. And it was his point where he almost chucked everything in. But he came through, he said, with his faith stronger still as he thought through the problem. Lewis sees pain as God's quote-unquote terrible instrument. As Lewis goes on to explain, it may lead to a final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil, it plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. As we looked at last week, what he's really saying is this, if I could summarise it in a nutshell. Suffering will either make you bitter or better. You'll either you know, experience suffering in your life and it'll humble you and you'll repent and you'll amend your ways or it will just harden you in your rebellion. But it will either do one of two things. It will either make you bitter or better. What will it be for you? Pain is only an intellectual problem can I say this respectfully, if you're full of yourself. If you think that you're the one who is in control and that the Lord does not continue to be involved in creation, and especially if that means he can't judge it, you have a problem. This is what it also means, I think, friends, to have a biblical worldview, which philosophers call a theistic worldview as opposed to a deistic one. God is doing more in the universe even today than you and I could ever imagine. You know, we often think, don't we, that God protected me from that accident, that car or that truck going on the other side of the road. Do you know, everybody that was here this morning was sustained by the Lord's hand as you drove to work, as you drove to church. The reason you didn't have an accident was because God was lovingly caring for you. Even Satan, though, is under his direction and can only do what he permits. We'll look at this more next week. But the question is this. Who are you to question his justice? Who are you and I to question him? The same philosophical principles hold true with the mountain goats and the deer. Such is the sovereign love and care of the almighty God that, did you notice, he even counts off the months of their pregnancy. 
I'm about to become a grandfather. And my daughter-in-law and when my wife get together, they're just talking everything pregnancy, everything from breastfeeding to, anyway, things I don't even want to know about. And it's like they're just counting off every day. Oh, what's happening this week? It's just another week. Oh, we're now in the third trimester. That's great. I'm pretty sure it's going to be nine months. They're just counting down the days. Any of you count down the days of the Potteroos and when they're going to give birth? God does. Even though no one else is aware of that is happening, God knows and takes an intimate interest in animals you don't even know exist. Or what about the wild donkey? No one can harness or, or his energy and he can't be tamed. Why? Because that's how God planned it. God planned for this particular creature to be able to run around the salt marshes. That was his plan. Christopher Ash has a really good thing to say here. He says, It is God who has let the wild donkey go free and loosed his bonds. It is God who has given him the dry, salty land as his dwelling place. He is free and wild. Why? Because that's what God willed him to be. He lives in a deeply inhospitable place, a place of death rather than life, and yet his choice, his freedom and his survival do not in any way compromise the absolute providential control of God over all of life. Rather, they express the wild wonder of God's providence right to the margins of life, Ash says. You see? There is not one inch of strange wildness that lies outside of God's counsel. Or what about the wild ox? You know, for most of history, this particular animal was feared just as much, if not more, than lions. Some beasts of oxes measured six feet across their shoulders, making their power and their strength tremendous. And God's saying to Job, can you contain that creature? Can you make him do your bidding without any risk at all of injury or death? If you haven't grown up in the country, you don't know really, I think, how dangerous even cattle can be. There's a lady in the church down the road from where we were. In, uh, we were in the church of Gunnedah who died one day because one of the cattle charged her into the pen. She died then and there in the dirt. Or then there's the ostrich. In some ways, you've got you, yeah, you to stop. Here's the ad break of God's speech, right? This animal's bizarre. On the one hand, he's incredibly quick over the land. As one of the kids said today, the fastest bird on earth. It's like the Usain Bolt of the animal world, of the bird world at least, right? Remember the meme where Usain Bolt is, um, looks across at the camera smiling? As he goes across the finishing line and everybody else is like straining just to keep up with him. He's like, there's daylight between him and second and he just looks across at the camera smiling. That's what the ostrich is like. It's so fast and fluffy, it, it can keep up with the horse and the rider. It's got no sense. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, it's just got this long skinny neck and this fluffy body. But he's so quick, he's keeping up and you just sort of got this stupid smile on its face. On the one hand, the ostrich has this amazing degree of, you know, God-given ability 
But at the same time, God says, yeah, I didn't. I, I decided not to give it any common sense. You know, we still don't. We, we still describe somebody who's ignorant or is not using their reason of acting like an ostrich or burying their head in the sand. Apparently, I, I didn't know this, apparently they do this because ostriches bury uh, literally their eggs in the sand as a little nest. They stick their head in the sand to make sure that they don't overheat, so they turn the egg over. But not only does it make you look really silly, and even God says it does, but it makes you open to being attacked by a predator. Oh, you know, you've got your head in the sand, rotating eggs, bang, along comes somebody and takes you out. Or even worse, here you are trying to protect the eggs, rolling them over, and they're only in a couple of inches of sand, and some other wild ox comes along, boom, 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 trample, gone. How could an animal at the same time that God created be so fast and so magnificent and so dumb? And God's saying, yeah, yeah, I designed that. That's my wisdom. God's saying to Job, have you ever noticed that? Such is my divine design. Those two things can coexist in the same creature. That's not a mistake. There is the presence of both wisdom and folly. And get this, Job, still doesn't perish. It's not like the ostriches became extinct like the dodos. They're still around. It's still able to produce offspring and survive. The seventh animal is that of the war horse. This was once again until recently, you know, one of the most fearsome beasts on battle. Notice that scripture says it doesn't show the slightest hesitation or qualm of going into battle. To get the idea of just how terrifying this animal can be, you, if you've seen the movie, you know, The Lord of the Rings and the Dark Riders, I watch it with my wife and she like refuses to like watch at that point. She like closes her eyes, puts her head under the covers. She's so scared of the Dark Riders. What are they? Horses. But they're terrifying because they don't stop. They have no fear. They chase you down like a hobbit hiding in a hole. They're something that the scripture says is so dark and so dangerous that in battle they're viewed almost as if they are demons. They have godlike supernatural qualities. There's this incredible combination of strength and agility and speed, of charging into the battle and of the danger that exists therein, of carrying instruments of death and destruction on their sides, of being able to, at the same time, leap like a locust and then turn quickly in the other direction, and of covering the ground so quickly before them that it's like they're eating up the soil. We might ride such a creature, but do we give any of these creatures such power, such strength? The final creature is that of the eagle and her young. And its nest is basically inaccessible and found on the tops of trees or mountains. But even here, the eagle only soars at God's command, at God's wisdom. But here's also the other point, and it leads on to what we're going to look at next week. What do you find in the nest? Cute little eaglets hatching. Well, they're there, but what else do you find? Blood and guts. Death and destruction. Chaos, decay. God says, I made that. They're only alive because I actually purposed for them. That's what they would eat. 
You don't see Job from your little puny earthly perspective on the ground, what's going up on the nest on the highest mountain, but I, I know what's going on and I'm in control. All of these creatures are under God's guidance and they're under his direction and they all express a paradox of life. It's not completely nice. It's not completely safe. There's both chaos and order, glory and garbage. But God reigns over all. Once again, God's not just in control of the big stuff, but the little stuff. Not just in control of cosmology, but zoology. George Bernard Shaw might try and quip that this is no answer to the question of suffering, but it is. It is. Because what the Lord is saying through this speech is that even suffering is under his control. It's not just that he can make a hippopotamus. It's that he has a plan for spiders and moths and flowers. For lions and goats and donkeys. For ostriches and horses and eagles. God is in control of everything. One author I was reading wrote, In this world of paradoxes, Yahweh continues to operate with the opposites of life and death, chaos and order, freedom and control, wisdom and folly, evil and blessing. All of these things function by God's knowledge and power. And wait till you see what he does with the hippopotamus. And that is why God stops himself mid-argument and he challenges Job directly at the start of chapter 40. And you really do feel the weight of this, don't you? Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. It's no light or inconsequential thing to talk back to God, or even worse, to accuse him of wrongdoing. I know that it's popular in pop psychology to say, oh, you know, just vent to God, express to him your anger. But friends, you've got to remember who you're talking to. Job understands so little as to how the universe operates. I spoke last week of the Lord demonstrating a holy sarcasm. For instance, when he says to Job in verses 19 and 21, have a look at this in chapter 38, if you still have your Bibles open. Chapter 38, verses 19 to 21. Next time you're tempted to complain to God or grumble, hear his word to you. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. God has every right to be upset at Job's arrogance and insolence. He understands so little. He's totally forgotten his place in the universe and to whom it is that he's addressing. He's addressing the Ancient of Days. The one who has no beginning or end. The one who sustains everything throughout all the universe. The one who was there before Job. The one who was there in control of everything that Job went through. And the one who is there even now. 
And precisely the same thing happens today when people proudly rebel against God, believing that they are so much smarter than he is. For instance, as I mentioned before, when asked what he would say if he died and he realised that God was true, Stephen Fry said this, and I am loath to even repeat it, but it makes the point. Fry says, quote, I will basically say to him what is known as theodicy. It's the problem of suffering or evil. I think I would say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? To which I respond, (laughs) remember who you're talking to. As we've seen from God's word today, Stephen Fry really has no idea. There is so much which could be said in response. Indeed, whole books have been written on this subject. But rather than rehash all the arguments, why don't I instead tell you a story? It's not something I came up with. I wish I had. It was written in the 1960s and it goes like this. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank from the brilliant light before them. But some groups came near the front uh, and talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beating Torture, death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but for being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that men had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he or she had suffered the most. A Jew, a black, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly disabled arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the centre of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case to God. It was rather clever. Before he could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they endured. Their verdict was that God should be sentenced to earth and live as a man. Let him be born a Jew. 
Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury. And let him be convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Let him die in agony. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. And let there be a whole host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced the portion of his sentence, a loud murmur of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when at last, when the last one had finished pronouncing his sentence, there was a long, long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, they all knew that God had already served his sentence. It's a powerful and profound reminder that in Christ, who we've been singing and worshipping this morning, we have a God who suffers. We're the only religion on earth that does. One who is known as mostly as the suffering servant. The suffering saviour. But following on from that, as we read from Matthew chapter 10, we as his disciples should be prepared to suffer too, shouldn't we? As Mick reminds us, as we're sent out on mission, what should we expect? The applause of the world? As Luther said, if our king wore a crown of thorns, we should not expect a bed of roses. And yet so often we do. Jesus himself says, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Are you be prepared to be called evil? Because the world hated Christ, why would we expect to receive its applause or praise? This is what I think is so problematic with those who want to constantly concede to the beliefs of the world. They offer concession after concession after concession in the hope that being nice, the world will like us. The world hates us. Well, it should because it hated Jesus. If it doesn't, there's a problem. We're not called to be nice. The Lord Jesus wants us to be faithful. To speak the truth in love. But make no mistake, it is going to lead to opposition and even persecution. And that's the way it's always been for those who faithfully follow Jesus and courageously bear witness for him. The, the irony is, is we've lived in an unprecedented time, haven't we, friends? And in Australia, that just hasn't been the case. But it is throughout the rest of the world. It's also why, and here's the encouragement, Jesus tells us not to be afraid of those who kill the body and that's all they can do. 
Now, you might be thinking, wait, 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 wait a minute. Killing the body, that sounds pretty serious to me. But Jesus is saying there's actually something infinitely more fearful than that. And that's the holy judgment of God. The one who has the power to destroy both the body and the soul in hell forever. That's a fate everyone should be rightly terrified of experiencing. Because that kind of punishment never ends. And it's what the Bible refers to as an eternal destruction. But here's the truth we need to remember. Any suffering we experience in this life, especially arising from the hostility of those who don't believe, is also under the sovereign hand of God. It's not like it's out of his control. For the maker and sustainer of the earth watches over even the smallest creature and so too he watches over you. As Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. In the 1990s, Philip Jensen said in a sermon which I've never forgotten, that Christians in Australia would be imprisoned for preaching the gospel in his lifetime. In the 1990s, he said that it would happen in about the next 25 years. In God's goodness and grace, it hasn't happened yet. But boy, it's getting close. And with things like the proposed gay conversion bill, I think... Can I say, friends, it won't be just people like me that will be targeted. It'll be you. It'll be mums and dads. You'll be the first on the chopping block. Parents who refuse to bend the knee to the golden idol of transgenderism and sexual perversity. Now, even me saying that is jarring, isn't it? In fact, the gay conversion bill comes in that becomes criminal. But the reason I do so is you have to be prepared. Prepared to suffer for Christ and for the truth of his word. Will you? Will you? Will you? When we do, remember this. That too is in Christ's hand. He's not lost control. It wasn't an accident or mistake. But in his loving and holy wisdom, the Lord has set a parameter around what happens to you. There is a hedge around you. There is a shield. And there is a fate worse than death. Worse than imprisonment. Worse than being fined. Worse than being hated. Whatever happens to us, will only happen because our loving Heavenly Father has decided to work out His saving plans and purposes. One day I was at Moore College and we were 
talking to Graham Goldsworthy, who I think is one of the most gifted theologians that God has given to Australia. And he was talking about reading a uh, Sunday school story to his young grandchild. And the Sunday school story was talking about Moses and how so many of the young children, remember in Moses' day, were slaughtered by Pharaoh. And yet we all know the story where Moses, Moses was actually rescued out of the reeds by Pharaoh's daughter. And then the Sunday school lesson concluded with these lines, God looked after Pharaoh, baby Moses, so God will look after me. And we, we all went, yeah, isn't that lovely? And he goes, yeah, it's just rubbish. Well, what's wrong with that? That sounded like a pretty good application to me. And he goes, well, God looked after baby Moses, but what about all the other Hebrew babies that died? Did God not look after them? Was that not his plan and purpose? And we said, well, what are you going to say, Graham? And he said, well, God looked after baby Moses, so God looked after baby Moses. But even if you should suffer, that too is in God's hands. So don't be discouraged when it takes place. Instead, be firm and steadfast. Hold on to the truth of God's word and look to the lamb who's been slain, the one who is standing in the middle of God's throne even now, the one who is surrounded by the four living creatures in heaven even now and is singing, "Worthy, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for speaking to us through your word this morning. We want to praise you that you are sovereign over good and evil, over life and death, over health and suffering, over sickness and healing, over chaos and order. Lord, we want to pray that you would strengthen us, you would encourage us, that we'll be faithful. Faithful even to the point of being hated or dying, but that, Lord, we will be faithful in speaking the truth in love. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word this morning. There's so many truths to grasp and to contain, but, Lord, we are left in no doubt that you live and that you speak. Lord, we uh, worship you, we love you, and we praise you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.